I gave you my youth, gave you your children. I don't like my children. Hello and welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. Okay, so fair warning. Today I plan to nerd out more than usual. I mentioned in the introduction episode in November that Beckett was one of the movies that indirectly inspired the creation of this podcast. I want to start by giving a rundown of the characters in the film and how they're connected, and then we'll jump backward in our timeline so you know how we got here before we run down the details of the plot. The film is about the relationship between Thomas Beckett and Henry II of England. Beckett is played by Richard Burton, who we previously saw as Mark Antony in Cleopatra. Henry is played by Peter O'Toole in what may be one of my all-time favorite performances. I suppose he may be a little over the top, but he perfectly displays so many aspects of one character without it ever seeming false. We get a Henry who is simultaneously ambitious and lazy, irresponsible and decisive, intimidating and weak, jealous, spiteful, and even loving, though he basically only loves and hates Beckett. Both Burton and O'Toole were nominated for leading actor at the Oscars, but lost to Rex Harrison for My Fair Lady. And I'll just assume that O'Toole lost because he split votes with Burton, and because I'm not a huge My Fair Lady fan. Other characters of significance include King Louis VII of France, who we see as Henry's rival. The two seem to enjoy being thorns in each other's sides. And indeed, due to his family holdings, Henry actually controlled more land in France than King Louis did. We have the elderly Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of London, who challenge the king's authority in regards to church matters. And we meet Henry's mother and wife. The film relegates these two to far too small roles. It just puts them in the back room knitting and offering Henry advice that only annoys him. These short family scenes, though, do have some of my favorite lines in the movie. When his wife is complaining about his treatment of her, and she says, I gave you your children. Henry immediately snaps back with, I don't like my children. And at another time, their four sons are playing as knights in like the hallways of the castle. And Henry asks one of them disdainfully, which one are you? And when the boy timidly answers, Henry III, the king throws him aside and yells, not yet, sir. Number two is in the best of health. Anyway, Henry's wife is Eleanor of Aquitaine. She was one of the richest women in this part of the world before she ever married Henry. She was the Duchess of Aquitaine, having inherited the title and land from her father. She led men in the unsuccessful Second Crusade. And the movie leaves out the fact that before Henry, she was married to Louis VII of France for 15 years. They even had two daughters together, but since they had no sons, they were allowed to have their marriage annulled. She then married Henry just two months after her annulment from Louis. I guess the movie just didn't have time to deal with this significant factor in the already tense rivalry between the two men. Eleanor and Henry were married before he was king, when she was 30 years old and he was just 19. Through these two and their eight children, it would seem if you were a later monarch in England or France, you can trace your family history back to this couple. Their son John continued the English line, and one of their daughter's daughters married the grandson of Louis VII of France. Henry's mother Matilda is likewise not just a background character in history. Henry's path to the English throne was not an obvious one. In fact, Matilda had a claim to the throne herself and very nearly got it, which would have made her the first English queen to rule almost 500 years before Mary Tudor would claim that distinction. But let's rewind again and look at how we got to this point. So I mentioned the Danes going back and forth with the House of Essex sitting on the English throne. Let's look specifically at one woman in the midst of all that. 
Emma of Normandy. She was the daughter of the Duke of Normandy, and the Norman line began with her great-grandfather Rollo, the Viking who established Normandy. And I haven't seen it, but I guess Rollo is a character on the TV show Vikings. It sounds like they take some creative license, of course, but it is supposed to be Emma's ancestor, and basically the first Norman ruler. Emma holds a distinction that I can't imagine anyone else can claim. She was married to two kings of England and had a son by each of them who were kings of England as well. In 1002, Emma was married to the English king Ethelred the Unready as an attempt by the English to pacify the constantly raiding Normans. Ethelred was the great-great-grandson of Alfred the Great, the first English king. After he died, his son from a previous marriage took the throne, but soon lost power to the Danish Canute the Great, who I mentioned was king of England when the story of the film The Physician began. So Emma, who had been married to Ethelred, was now married to the new king, Canute the Great. And the son she had with Ethelred stayed away safely in Normandy. When Canute died, he was first succeeded by his son from a previous marriage, then by his son with Emma. This son died just two years later, when it appears he drank too much at a wedding. And then finally, Emma's elder son by Ethelred became king. Don't worry, there won't be a test, but the son of Emma's was Edward the Confessor, whose lack of an heir will trigger one of the most significant events in English history. Edward ruled England for 24 years, and his wife bore him no children. When he died in 1066, multiple parties vied for the throne. A council of elders first elected Harold Godwinson to rule. He didn't have a direct family connection, but was basically just the big man on campus of the Anglo-Saxon nobles with ties to the Danes and Canute the Great as well. The king of Norway attempted to invade and conquer, but he was killed in battle against Godwinson's forces. And some historians consider this Norwegian loss to be the end of the Viking Age. All still in 1066, another army came for the throne. This one led by Emma's great-nephew, the bastard-born Duke of Normandy, William. William was descended from Rollo, just as Emma was, but through his paternal grandmother, William was also a descendant of Charlemagne. Godwinson met William at the Battle of Hastings, about 60 miles southeast of London on the coast of Britain. The Normans won, with Godwinson killed in battle, and William the Conqueror became King of England, the last man to successfully invade the island of Great Britain. Napoleon couldn't do it. Hitler couldn't do it. Godwinson would be the last Anglo-Saxon king of England. William, now William I, was succeeded by his son, William II. This William never married and apparently had no mistresses either, so no children. He ruled for 13 years and was killed while out hunting in an incident that is still debated. He took an arrow in the lungs and his body was basically just left in the woods while his brother Henry raced back to ensure his claim to the throne. It wasn't just a gimme as they had an older brother in exile and remember this was a new dynasty. It had been just over 30 years since his father won at Hastings. So Henry I became King of England, though he was the fourth son of William the Conqueror. Henry married very well, with his wife being descended not only from Ethelred the Unready and Alfred the Great, but also from the Scottish kings Malcolm and Duncan, who are plagued by Macbeth in the Shakespeare play. Henry I had plenty of bastards, but his only legitimate son drowned when a ship he was on sunk. Henry named his daughter as heir. And there's the connection. Henry I's daughter, Matilda, is the mother of Henry II of our story today. Matilda's first husband was the Holy Roman Emperor, so Matilda is often seen as Empress Matilda. As you can see, she has one of the most impressive lineages in history. Charlemagne and William the Conqueror on her father's side, and Alfred the Great, Rollo, and Duncan of Scotland on her mother's side. 
And side note here, this is unbroken. When we see stories today about Prince William and Kate having kids, this is their heritage, their ancestry. Doesn't make them more important than us, but darn if I'm not jealous that they can trace back to these historical figures. And before you make any inbreeding jokes, remember from my episode on Cleopatra that you've got your fair share of that as well. It's just not as documented. When those kings 500 to 1,000 years ago were marrying their first cousins, our peasant ancestors were doing the same. Matilda had no children in her marriage to the Holy Roman Emperor, and after his death, she was married to Geoffrey of Anjou, with whom she had three sons. Her father's death, again Henry I, in 1135, sparked 18 years of civil war when the nobles refused to accept a woman as ruler, even though Henry had named Matilda his heir. Instead, they named her first cousin Stephen as king. Stephen's mother was Henry I's sister and a daughter of William the Conqueror. But Matilda didn't take this lying down. She led an army to capture the throne and even captured Stephen, holding him prisoner. But the people refused to accept having a queen, and she was never crowned. She was later forced to escape back to Normandy, and the war kind of became a stalemate. Time passed, and young Henry was now ready to fight Stephen in his own right, without the full support of his mother or other family. But the stalemate continued. Neither side ever scored a decisive victory against the other. Henry seems to have been somewhat of an underdog in all this. Finally, and perhaps reluctantly on both sides, a peace treaty was reached after Stephen's son died of illness. Henry's camp agreed to stop fighting and pay homage to Stephen, and in exchange, Stephen named Henry as his adopted son and heir. Henry went back to the safety of Normandy, but just a year later, Stephen died, and Henry returned to England to be crowned Henry II. So again, if you watch the movie Beckett, think about all this subtext when you see an elderly Matilda offering her son advice. So I hope I didn't lose you there, and we're finally to the story of our movie today. It doesn't say exactly when the story begins, but based on known events, it would actually seem to be at the very beginning of Henry's reign. The movie doesn't necessarily give that vibe. It makes it seem like he's been king for a while, maybe, but I suppose it does fit with the conversations we see Henry having with church leaders at the beginning. One of his first acts in the film is to appoint his friend Thomas Beckett as Lord Chancellor. This happened in January of 1155, just three months after Henry had been crowned. Burton plays Beckett as calm and calculating. Henry is constantly in awe of his intelligence and knows he himself may not be that smart, but that he's just smart enough to put Beckett in charge of matters of state. A major theme in the movie is the relationship between the local Saxons and the newly in charge Normans, which makes sense. The Norman kings rule and brought with them Norman barons and Norman church leaders, while all the local peasants and common people were the Anglo-Saxons who had lived in the region since they bullied their own way onto the island around the time of King Arthur and the Britons. And this social hierarchy is actually visible in our language today. The Saxon farmers used the words that became pig, sheep, and cow for the animals they tended to, while the rich Normans from France used the words that became pork, mutton, and beef while eating those same animals. One big element that was altered for dramatic effect in the movie is the heritage of Thomas Beckett. The movie and the play it was based on chose to make Beckett a Saxon who Henry had chosen to elevate much to the chagrin of Norman nobles and church leaders. But in reality, Beckett was Norman himself, so that dynamic just didn't exist. The key point of contention between Henry and the church is how to deal with clergy members who break the law The church insists all crimes by clergy are a matter for the church to deal with internally. But Henry says as king, he has to have authority over all his subjects, especially if a clergy member commits a crime outside of the context of the church. Later, while Henry and Becket are over in Normandy dealing with territorial battles against Louis VII, they get word that the archbishop has died. 
Again, while the movie seems to condense everything, this happened in 1161, so six years after Beckett became Lord Chancellor. In both the movie and in real life, this archbishop had been a supporter of Beckett as his career was getting started. The movie continues the false narrative that he was the first Norman to lend a hand to the Saxon Beckett. But again, as Beckett was actually Norman, the archbishop had just been one to hire the young man to work in his household and made Beckett an archdeacon. With the position of Archbishop of Canterbury now vacant, and given his issues with the church, Henry has what he believes is the perfect solution. Nominate his buddy Beckett to the post, knowing he can pressure the right people to make the church agree to it. Beckett is adamant that this is a horrible idea and begs Henry to reconsider. Beckett isn't even a priest. Henry says, then we'll make you a priest and make you archbishop the next day. And this is what happened in reality. It took a few months to line it up, but in 1162, Beckett was ordained as a priest one day and consecrated as archbishop the next. But then a change occurs that neither Henry nor Beckett predicted. Beckett takes the job 100% seriously. He proves to be more stubborn and more of a nuisance to Henry than any of the other church leaders had been. The movie, by necessity, simplifies the major rift between them. It has a priest accused of molesting a young girl, and the civil authorities arrest him. As the church prepares to demand his release into their own authority, they get word that the priest was killed while trying to escape. Beckett demands that the man who killed the priest be arrested and charged with murder. The man's name is Lord Gilbert, which I only mention so it'll be easier to refer to him. When Henry refuses to have him arrested, Beckett plans to excommunicate Lord Gilbert. Through various channels, Henry makes it clear that if he does, Beckett will be arrested on trumped-up charges of embezzlement from his time as chancellor. Beckett doesn't back down and goes through with the excommunication of Gilbert, then, in an even bolder move, refuses to be arrested. He tells Henry's men that he appeals directly to the Pope and that any other man threatens his immortal soul if they attempt to lay a hand on him. Henry oversees this event from hiding and still can't help but admire Beckett's courage and applauds the move. He says, Beckett is the only intelligent man in my kingdom and he's against me. Henry gives orders that Beckett must not be allowed to leave the country, but he escapes in disguise to France and seeks refuge with Henry's rival, King Louis VII. Beckett eventually gets an audience with the Pope, who says he ought to have been more prudent. The Pope seems more willing to play politics while Beckett is an idealist. The Pope here is Alexander III, who, incidentally, was at the ceremony in Paris when the first cornerstone of the Notre Dame Cathedral was laid, and some accounts say he laid it himself. The Pope tells Beckett not to compromise, but that he should probably lay low for a while and not return to England. So, reality, of course, was a little more nuanced. There were continued issues with the civil versus ecclesiastical courts, but the breaking point seems to have been Henry's attempts to pass the Constitution of Clarendon, basically a way for Henry to formally decrease both the church's power in England and the English church's connection to Rome. Henry, likely strong-arming them, got everyone to agree, but Becky refused to sign it and was charged with contempt of royal authority and malfeasance while he was chancellor, so kind of similar to the film. Also similarly, Beckett did flee to the protection of France, and this was all about a year and a half after becoming Archbishop. The movie does show a passage of time here, but undersells it. Beckett and Henry meet on the beaches of Normandy, and it's implied much time has passed with Beckett in exile, but I didn't get a feel for the more than six years it had been in reality since they'd seen each other. Beckett is basically allowed to return to England and resume his duties as Archbishop. At a family dinner, Henry says he will name his eldest son to co-regent and have the coronation at York, not Canterbury, as his tradition. The point here has nothing to do with his son. It would only be a political stunt, a slap in the face to Beckett and Canterbury. After he kicks his family out of the dinner and is drinking with four of his barons, he gives the famed line, Will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest? 
The barons interpret this as a command and travel to Canterbury and assassinate Becket. Here again, the movie rushes events. In reality, they did go through with the crowning of Henry's son at York, and Becket excommunicated three clergy members who crowned the boy. And this act by Becket seems to be what prompted Henry's indirect call for his assassination. Henry may not have said exactly, will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest, especially as modern English wasn't yet spoken at the time. In fact, this whole language thing really falls outside of the scope of what I'm trying to do, but like everything, let's just recognize how complicated it is. Remember, languages are alive in a certain sense, constantly evolving and something we subconsciously develop in conjunction with those whom we regularly communicate. Anyway, the historical account of Becket's assassination says the knights actually left their weapons respectfully outside the church and then went inside and demanded Becket come before the king. When he refused, they went back and reclaimed their weapons and came back in and killed him. There's actually a grisly eyewitness account of Becket's death that, in addition to giving the graphic violent details, has a wounded Becket saying, For the name of Jesus and the protection of the church, I am ready to embrace death, before receiving the final fatal blow. The movie is bookended by King Henry kneeling before Becket's tomb and talking to his old friend. At the end, we see him being whipped by Saxon monks as a way of paying penance for Becket's death. I don't know about the whipping per se, but Henry did perform a public penance outside Becket's tomb in 1174, so four years after Becket's death. In the movie, the knights slash barons who killed Becket go completely unpunished as there were no witnesses. In reality, they didn't receive any civil punishment, but they were excommunicated by Pope Alexander III, who later assigned them to serve as knights in the Holy Land. As noted in the film as well, Becket was canonized as a saint by the Pope a couple years later. Becket's remains were removed at various times to different shrines before finally being destroyed by Henry VIII in the 1500s. He obviously had his own issues with the church that we'll discuss later. Henry's mother, the Empress Matilda, died three years before Becket was assassinated, but the film shows her alive on the same night the barons get the idea to kill Becket. So, just a little discrepancy there. I want to briefly mention the children of Henry II and his wife Eleanor. The movie shows their four boys, and we see them playing with their ages ranging from maybe 7 to 15. Basically, they just didn't bother to make this correct. The couple had eight children together, five boys, one who died very young, and three girls. The scene where we see the boys playing would be around 1164 at the latest, as it's before Beckett goes into exile. Their eldest son would have been about nine, and their youngest boy was not yet born. I'm going to save more talk of their children for a bonus episode that'll be out this Friday, but I'll tease it by reminding you that their sons include King Richard the Lionheart and King John. The movie more than once makes reference to Henry's wife's uncle being an emperor, but I don't know what they're referring to here. It would make sense if he were, say, the Holy Roman Emperor, but that doesn't appear to be the case. And in general, I got a little confused in my research as the Holy Roman Emperor originally was the French King Charlemagne. But in today's story, we have King Louis VII of France, who was not also the Holy Roman Emperor. Territories shift, and the Holy Roman Empire was roughly centered around today's Germany for our purposes here. Just a lot bigger, so France was definitely separate. The movie also has Beckett introducing Henry to the invention of the fork. If anything, they're actually ahead of reality here. It would have been used in Italy at this time, but it would be centuries before forks were commonly used in England. And finally, Henry II himself. This story actually gives us a good picture of the man, or at least his personality. He was short and stocky, not tall and lean like Peter O'Toole, but his temper and immaturity while still maintaining gravitas do seem to be who Henry II was. There is more to his story before the end, but again, I'm saving that for Friday. 
The film Beckett was nominated for 12 Oscars, but only won one for adapted screenplay. Elsewhere in the world at the time of Beckett, the Song Dynasty in China uses gunpowder bombs in a naval battle against the Jin Dynasty. The year after, King Louis of France married Eleanor of Aquitaine, a massive earthquake rocked Aleppo in what is now Syria. And in the same year that Thomas Beckett became Archbishop of Canterbury, in the Kenti Mountains of Mongolia, Genghis Khan was born. His empire would become the largest the world had ever known up to this time, dwarfing those of Alexander, the Persians, or the Muslims. Join us next week as we explore the 2007 film, Mongol. Mongol.